Hello, Vision Nation. You've seen the scary headlines about a looming recession, but what's actually the current state of the US economy? In this episode, I'll speak with Sam Burns. He's a senior equity strategist with over 20 years of experience in financial markets. We're going to cover Sam's take on the economy and his outlook to later this year in 2024. We'll also go over something that confuses investors all over the place. I've personally heard experienced investors puzzled by this. What I'm talking about is why we sometimes see scary headlines about the economy while the stock market keeps hitting new highs. Sam and I will go over this phenomenon. We'll discuss whether inflation is finally under control or if there are nasty surprises on the horizon. And we'll also get into the best hunting grounds for solid investment opportunities today. I really enjoyed speaking to Sam. He's a true expert and has a ton of knowledge about the economy and the markets. You don't want to miss this one. Let's dive right in. Hello, Vision Nation. Sam Burns is a senior equity strategist with over 20 years of experience in financial markets. He is the founder and chief strategist at Mill Street Research. Mill Street Research is an independent investment research firm devoted to providing high-quality strategy and stock selection research to institutional investors. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And, and Sam, I wanted to start things off by, uh, by mentioning that our listeners have told me that they really enjoy understanding the context that different guests bring to the show. And so I wanted to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What kind of work are you doing these days and what led you to starting your own independent research firm? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. So I've been doing this kind of work, which is primarily uh, asset allocation and stock selection uh, research for institutional investors for a long time. Um, my you know, first real go at it was at working at a place called Ned Davis Research uh, down in Florida for a while. Uh, and then I moved up here to the Boston area um, and have worked at places like uh, State Street Global Markets, uh, Brown Brothers Harriman and uh, Oppenheimer and Company. So I've worked at sort of smaller firms and bigger firms uh, doing research uh, of different types, but always with a quantitative bent, uh, building models and indicators, kind of having an objective quantitative approach to markets and the economy has really been the common thread behind it all. And that's really kind of my personality of, you know, I need a structured approach to uh, how to, to, to deal with markets because there's so much that can be, you know, kind of get you off track with looking at the headlines and watching prices every day. Um, it's very easy to, for your emotions to get away from you or to get distracted by things that aren't really relevant. And so having some kind of a structured approach has been what I've been thinking my job to do is and to help uh, institutional clients who actually, you know, even though they're professionals face a lot of the same pressures, uh, and are very busy and don't have time for a lot of things uh, to give them information they can use uh, to make investment decisions and to understand why and where it's coming from. That it's not just I made it up today. It's a, you know, there's there's a process and some data. Do a lot of historical testing uh, to to kind of back up what I'm saying. It's really been a kind of a, a, a trend of that and building all these you know, kind of tools. And then when I went independent about seven years ago, as a way to bring all the best of the best tools that I've made into one place and be able to have full control over them and have no uh, conflicts or, uh, you know, kind of things where I don't have to worry about what uh, investment banking side of the business says or a trader says, or I only do research and nothing else. So uh, all of my views are my own. I can say buy or sell anything I want and uh, don't have to worry about what anybody else says about it. So uh, 
Um, I, uh, you know, <clears throat> that's really been the focus of, of what I've been trying to do. Uh, yeah. so that's what Hell Street is, is built around. And that, it's really powerful to be able to provide kind of a totally unbiased, well, in front, in terms of internal, everybody has their own biases, but internally, nobody is kind of telling you, oh, you know, you, you got to go with this sort of uh, theme. Uh, so for an external investor, just to be able to tap in and see, oh, you know, what does Sam think about this? That's a really powerful thing because internally there's all these politics going on and, and things like that that can really cause the decision-making process to be inefficient. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know I've seen it uh, a bunch of times at different firms where whatever the you know analysts might privately think, you know, they're told by someone, you know, well, no, we can't say that. We don't want to pitch that way. A company would get mad or the holders of the stock would get mad or somebody would, you know, would not like that. Or we're in the business of selling stocks. We can't, you know, we want people to buy. We don't want them to sell because that's bad for business. Um, all those things are, are sort of the uh, underlying incentives to a lot of the business that's based on transactions and, 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 and things like that, investment banking. And so it can be a, a, a bad influence on uh, giving, you know, really objective advice. And so uh, that's why I think, you know, being independent is a big benefit there. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And uh, so shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, I find that many investors that have various levels of experience can still get a little bit confused by this. Why is the market not the same as the economy? You know, sometimes you see crazy headlines saying that, you know, job losses, uh, you know, conflict somewhere in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, you might see the market actually doing well. So why is that? Yeah, no, it's a very common thing. And and even again, professionals sometimes get thrown off by looking at, uh, you know, what they think is the economy is, and then being surprised by the stock market doing something, something different. And there's various aspects of that. One is that um, some of what you see in terms of the economy means data like the, you know, GDP, gross domestic product data, some of those, you know, big picture economic reports that you see, um, those often will tell you what has happened you know, last quarter, last year, and those, the markets are really focused on what's going to happen over the next year, next five years, next 10 years. And those two things, you know, can be different. If things have been weak lately, but you think they're going to get better, then stock prices will reflect what's, you know, what's going to happen or what people think is going to happen, not what's already happened. Uh, you don't get paid for what happened last year. You get paid for what's happening, going to happen next year. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, certain things like, like a, you know, a layoff announcement, you know, what investors are in equity certainly are focused on is corporate profits. And so if cost cutting means profits go up, then there could be a logical reason why, you know, a restructuring or something like that could cause a stock's price to rise, even though they're, they're cutting jobs. Uh, it depends on whether it's, uh, it's caused by demand being weaker or by simply they, well, they had their cost too high and now they need to adjust. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, the economy encompasses, you know, individuals, you know, households and businesses and the government. And the stock market really is only businesses and it's only publicly traded businesses. And really, mostly people are looking at large publicly traded businesses that are in the stock market indices. And so that's really only a sort of a subcomponent of the overall economy and the corporate earnings that go with it. So there's a lot of other things going on in the economy that are not going to directly drive stock prices and corporate earnings that are still important, but are not going to be what you refer to where you're going to, you know, be important for predicting future stock prices. I think that's a lot of what people kind of get confused by is what they're measuring and, uh, and looking forward rather than, than backwards in some ways. 
and those are great, great points. And would you say the market, what kind of time frame? That, I mean, this is very broad, of course, but just your interpretation. Is the market more focused on, you know, the kind of two year time frame, two to five years, five plus? Where, and does that change? Uh, it certainly can change. And it's, it's funny. It's one of those things where if you read the financial textbooks, you know, if you do your uh, CFA or your MBA or whatever they teach you, uh, equities uh, in particular are long duration holdings, meaning that when you buy an equity, you, you're you're allowed you're participating in all the future profits that the company will ever make, uh, which could be you know many many years. Um, so in theory, you should be focused on the long term outlook. So maybe you know ten years, twenty years even, because um, stocks don't have an expiration date, and so uh, they, they do come and go, but but they don't have a, a duration like like bonds do. But in practice, when you actually look at how investors behave and what, the way the markets behave and the way investors actually make their decisions, they mostly tend to look at, say, 12 to 24 months ahead. Um, that's really about as far as anyone can have a prediction about earnings or interest rates or the economy with any kind of real hope of any precision. Uh, otherwise, you're just kind of saying, well, it'll be a you know, X percent growth rate, and that's just kind of a, a general guess. And so um, most people are thinking about a year or two out, typically, even though in theory, you know, according to the textbook, you should be thinking about five or 10 or 20 years. Um, so what you think of is going to happen over the next year or so tends to be what drives uh, stock prices in practice. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so looking at today's U.S. market landscape, what are you to keep track of many indi indicators in your models. What are your indicators telling you right now? What is uh, Sam's crystal ball telling him? <laughs> yeah, I really wish I had a crystal ball. That would make things a lot easier. But uh, yeah, the indicators I look at um, have been bullish on equities and bearish on bonds for all year um, and really starting late last year. Um, that really, you know, around October, November, December of last year, it basically looked like everyone was extremely negative and bearish uh, on the economy and the, the market on corporate earnings and really thought that, you know, that we're going to have a recession this year. You know, like right now we should be in recession if they, if they had been right. And that there was just a high degree of negativity about uh, what was going to happen. A lot of it was because the Fed was going to be raising rates aggressively and because all the stimulus from COVID was going to go away. And then therefore we were going to kind of fall off a cliff and, and go into recession. Um, that hasn't happened. And so uh, the fact that things were not as bad as people expected them to be has meant that the stock market's up and our corporate earnings are up and that that's turned out better than expected. Not that things are spectacular, but they are pretty good given what, what might have happened. Um, so I think that's kind of been the driver of what's been happening and why stocks have been holding up, even though uh, bond yields have gone up a lot and the Fed has raised rates aggressively, which typically historically would be a bad sign and may wind up being a bad sign. Um, I think what's happened is that fiscal policy, uh, the other side of kind of the policy equation, has been very, very supportive. Because uh, first you had all the COVID stimulus, everybody got checks or PPP loans and all those different things. And then that kind of faded away a year or two ago. And now, but more recently, you've gotten all these infrastructure related um, bills that got passed, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, have all driven a lot of like kind of longer term infrastructure manufacturing kind of uh, growth. And you've seen that in the, in the economic data, a lot of factories being built, a lot of things going on. And that's been showing up in corporate earnings and in, in, in the data that I look at. So it's been that fiscal policy is almost offset uh, monetary policy. And everybody looks at the Fed and monetary policy because that gets all the attention. And they've kind of overlooked fiscal policy. 
which has been very different this cycle than on all the past cycles for the last 40 years. So I think that's been the real difference this this time. And I think that there is there are some that can continue for a while longer. The, the, the fiscal policy support should help for the next at least six to 12 months. Um, and then it's a question of, well, are interest rates going to offset that? Is the Fed going to kind of go too far? Or is the rest of the world, you know, going to slow things down so much that that brings kind of the U.S. down as well? So the U.S. has held up a lot better than Europe or China or most other parts of the world. And uh, again, a lot of that is driven by U.S. Uh, fiscal policy. Um, so I think that's been the, the big swing factor and why stocks have done much better than people expected. That's a, such an important distinction, the fiscal policy side of things versus the monetary policy. Um, what would you say? So you mentioned that in the past 40 years, you know, the fiscal stimulus hasn't really been all that great. I mean, compared to what we're seeing now, did anything structurally change? Yeah, no, I think there have been some changes, I think, in the past. Um, you know, you would have a certain amount of, you know, kind of stimulus coming right out of a recession, uh, when the government would try to you know get things going after things had been been very bad, but then it would kind of quickly they would reverse. And you know the, the theme for a long time has really just been worried about like the deficit and the debt, and that, that they didn't want to spend too much because that was going to make the deficit be too high and, and the you know federal debt be too high. And I think what happened um, you know over the last maybe whatever ten years or so, in some ways coming out of the two thousand eight crisis. Um, there was a lot of, you know, there, there wasn't a big initial, uh, you know, fiscal support coming out of that and it, it didn't raise the deficit and the debt for a while, but then it, it didn't, it didn't last that long and, and kind of, you know, rolled back over again. And so after a couple of years, it kind of faded away and, but it didn't do enough to bring kind of the underlying growth rate back up. So you had basically what you had a, a sort of a very sluggish, uh, low, uh, employment, Kind of uh, growth rate from 2010 to you know 2019, basically that whole decade was much weaker than it could have been because fiscal policy was relatively muted. People were worried about the, the deficits, and then COVID came along and kind of you know kind of blew the deficit worries out of the water for a little while. People were just saying, you know, we need to respond to this global pandemic, and so we had a huge deficit for a little while, and we saw the that really worked. It kept people in jobs, it kept the economy afloat. And it did produce some inflation, but now that's starting to come back down again, but you're still getting kind of the benefits to the economy. And then you had this infrastructure related stuff that has come along subsequently. And that's really the thing that's been different that you had, even without a recession, you had significant fiscal support that was driven by roads and bridges, building factories, you know, longer term, not just giving people a check or, you know, unemployment insurance. It was, you know, long-term investments in the economy uh, that came from the uh, sort of a rare alignment of the politics, you know, that the Democrats, you know, were in charge of Congress for a while and got these things passed. Um, and those have had, I think, a, a bigger structural impact uh, or will have than we've seen for, for a long time. Now, of course, Congress is split again, and we probably won't get any more of that for a while um, because of the politics. But um, I think that's been the, the difference just the last two or three years. And kind of has shown people that uh, it can work, and that it, it you know it, it maybe should be you know used more often, um, and and helps counterbalance what the Fed is doing because the Fed tends to sort of be worried about inflation, and then we'll you know we'll not worry as much about growth. Meaning if, if people lose their jobs, oh well, as long as inflation comes down, um, and that's kind of been a a, a restraint on growth o over the last thirty or forty years. 
And so looking at those two forces and everything that else that's going on in the market, um, what if we were just talking about probabilities? So, you know, there's a chance of a soft landing or is there there's a chance of a recession happening. And a quick reminder to the listeners, uh, a soft landing happens when there's cooling inflation while maintaining economic growth. So that's the optimal sort of scenario that a lot of people are hoping for. Um, so Sam, what kind of probabilities would you be attributing to the different scenarios? Yeah, no, that's been a big topic. A lot of, a lot of clients ask me about that. Um, and in my mind, there's a, there's a certain way in which we've already achieved what looks very much like a soft landing now, relative at least to what people were expecting, say, you know, a year ago or even six months ago. Um, the you know official reported inflation data is not back to the two or two and a half percent rate that the Fed considers you know the, the target rate, um, but we're getting close. And if you adjust some of the inflation data for the lags that are embedded in the uh, housing uh, component, which is a big component of the CPI and the the PCE, the the, the, the Fed watches, um, we're already basically at near or tier two percent inflation, and growth is still positive. Uh, employment is still strong. Um, so in my mind, we're almost already there and certainly much closer to it than anybody would have expected. Um, I think we will get there in the sense that I think inflation will continue to decline and we'll see that kind of 2%-ish uh, inflation rate officially um, in the next few months. And I don't think we're going to see a recession in the next few months. So I think we will kind of get there um, in the next, say, six months or so. We'll, you know, it'll be more clear in the data uh, that we have had a soft landing. Um, now, you know, people will always argue about that or how long that will last. Uh, it may be that, you know, by the time you get into late 24 or 20, 2025, things start to look weaker. And then you say, well, then we're going to get a recession. And that could certainly happen. Um, it's hard to look out, you know, too far. But I think right now there's enough momentum and enough of that fiscal support um, that we can get, you know, certainly over the next, say, six months or so with, you know, positive growth and and falling inflation down to sort of the the target that the Fed wants to see, um, so I put a pretty good odds on on some form of soft landing happening. Um, I think um, I don't see inflation going back up a lot, um, so I don't think the '70s kind of environment of you know we're going to have a big resurgence in inflation is going to happen. I put very low odds on that, and a, a recession or worse than expected growth uh, has you know some odds, uh, but that's probably maybe a 20 25 percent chance versus a a much higher chance of a uh, of kind of you know slower but positive growth and, and lower inflation. Hmm. That's that's great to hear. Positive news for all the all the bulls out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have to follow that up and and ask you: Is there anything that would happen um, that would make you change your mind? Are there any specific things that you're following where, if you know a couple of headlines about X topic came out, you would say, "Hmm, okay, maybe that would tilt." The, the the scales a little bit more toward having a recession earlier on? Yeah, no, you're right. And um, certainly, um, you know, in my mind, you know, policy mistakes, as you want to call it that, are, are, are the real risk in some sense. I don't see a lot of structural issues um, in the economy the way we might have had, say, in 2006 and seven, where debt levels were very high. There was all that kind of craziness in the mortgages. The banking system was weak. You know, all those things that kind of set up that crisis that we then had, I don't really see that happening to the same degree now. Um, there is still, I guess, some risk that the banks, some of the smaller regional banks, 
um, will have problems like they had back in March, if you recall, Silicon Valley Bank and some of those banks that got on the wrong side of the interest rate move, essentially, their bond portfolios hurt them and then depositors started to leave. Um, but I think to some degree, the, the, the government has stabilized that or, or at least removed the risk of uh, depositors losing their money and it becoming a systemic problem. Uh, I think the banking system in, in aggregate is still doing okay. Um, but I think the risk would be that either monetary policy uh, gets too tight and stays too tight for too long, or that fiscal policy uh, tightens too aggressively. Uh, we start, start talking about cutting the deficit again, and we start trying to restrict uh, spending too much, and that would then cause that fiscal leg that's been holding us up to, to weaken or fall over. And then that, that would kind of bring the, you know, the economy down um, because it wouldn't have that kind of balance that it has right now. Um, and then certainly, you know, global events can, can do that. Um, you know, the, the Middle East is a concern, certainly right now. Um, and China has been a big driver of global growth for many years and is really struggling now. It's got a lot more headwinds than it has in the past. I don't think that's going to be a big crisis per se, as much as just simply a lack of the growth that it used to have. That It's just going to be much slower and they won't be driving demand globally the way they did in the past. So I don't see um, you know, a big imminent reason for that unless either Congress or the Fed does something really you know, uh, sort of unusual uh, and, and, and tightens policy too aggressively. I think it'd be the, the, the greater risk. And longer term, you know, policy risk is really where a lot of the recessions end up coming from. Hmm. That, those are great points. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the big kind of debt load that the U.S. government is carrying right now. Um, is there? It just seems like such a complex issue that it's kind of easier to just kick the can down the road instead of really doing anything about that. Do you see that as a big long-term problem? When you look at the numbers, they're just staggering, very scary, big numbers. Oh yeah, you're right, and I certainly see a lot of commentary and talk about kind of the, the, the size of the federal debt or the, or the deficit. Um, and certainly the numbers are, are big, um, but I think in, in many cases, the numbers are not put in context correctly. Um, when you think about big numbers, you also have to think about the size of the U.S. economy, which is also extremely large, you know, 25 trillion or something like that every year. And so to, in my mind, when you look at the U.S. federal level debt or deficit relative to GDP, uh, or you know other measures of the overall economy, it's not really that extreme. Uh, it's higher than it used to be for sure, um, but it doesn't. It's not at the level that would cause a real you know kind of fiscal crisis or uh, you know economic problem. Um, in part because of course uh, the U.S. federal government can issue as much money as it needs to. There's no actual limit on it. Um, Congress obviously puts in arbitrary debt limits and things like that and tries to you know shut the government down periodically. But those are politics. That's not, there's not an actual reason for that. Those are just dumb things that they do. Um, and so, you know, obviously the, if the deficit stays too high for too long, perpetually, it can be a problem. And the main problem for, for this, you know, a currency issuing government like the U.S. is inflation. Um, that if you issue, you know, if your deficits are too high for too long, you get inflation. Um, now that hasn't been a problem for a long time, for 30, 40 years, inflation has actually been too low uh, by, for, for many years. Um, and so I don't really see that as an issue unless fiscal policy really becomes drastically different over the next 10 years or so than it has been, uh, which I, I don't really see happening. Um, now, the state and local governments, kind of you know, other areas of the economy, uh, they don't have unlimited borrowing capacity or, or things like that. So there could be issues there. 
Uh, and certainly corporations and individuals can get into debt issues. Uh, but in aggregate, that doesn't seem to be a problem right now. Um, again, relative to say even 2006 or some some you know times in the past, uh, in aggregate households are, are okay debt wise, and corporations are okay debt wise. Um, so I don't see those areas being an issue. And the federal level, um, it, it isn't really a problem. Um, and again, you, know, you look at Japan as an example; their outstanding federal government debt is much much higher than ours is relative to their GDP, and has been for years. And they haven't had any problems with it. They're basically they're, the Bank of Japan just buys whatever they need to, and you know rates are low and they don't have any inflation much, and their economy's not great, but it's okay. And um, so all those problems that people are worried about haven't happened. Um, so if you're a currency issuing government, you can you can you have a lot more flexibility. Whereas you know areas like the euro or other countries where they don't have the same fiscal flexibility, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask your, your take on some specific asset classes. And so the first one I wanted to ask you about was uh, the U.S. real estate market. So both from a commercial and residential perspective, what are your thoughts on what's happening there with interest rates, of course, being a big factor affecting the asset class, affecting cap rates? Um, what are your thoughts currently? And do you favor this asset class long term? Yeah, it's been a really interesting area to look at. Uh, there's been a lot of to me, what look like divergences um, in terms of what you'd expect or what one part of the market is doing versus another part. Um, I think um, residential housing uh, is okay in the sense that it's holding up better than a lot of people expected. Um, and there, what you've really seen is is the, the divergence is incomes have been rising. So from an income level, people can afford to buy a house about as much as they could say two years ago. Uh, what's changed, of course, is the financing cost. And so if you want to, you know, buy a house out of just out of your income, that's one thing. If you need to find it and get a mortgage, you know, you're paying seven or 8% now versus three or 4%, you know, two or three years ago. And that's really where the, what's made houses more expensive. It's not the house price itself as much as it has been the, the financing cost. And so there, it depends on who you are and what you are and what's going on. But it's also meant that whoever does have a low rate mortgage from the past doesn't want to sell. So there's basically no inventory. Um, there's very few houses for sale uh, in the U.S. Um, in terms of you know, existing homes being offered for sale. So there is still demand for housing. So the prices of houses have not fallen like you might expect them to uh, when, when mortgage rates have risen. And of course, people who are looking to buy a house are you know, having to think hard about whether they want to take on a 7 or 8% mortgage rate to buy a house. Now, um, so that'll probably take a while to kind of work its way out. So the, con- the, the market's sort of locked in some ways. The buyers don't want to buy. The sellers don't want to sell. So there's just not much happening. Um, I think that'll that'll kind of loosen it at some point, but it'll t- it'll take a while. In commercial real estate, um, you have kind of the effect of COVID, where people are you know office buildings, and people aren't going back to the office as much as they used to, um, and you have higher interest rates, which makes it harder to you know to finance the cost of, of commercial real estate, and that's been a double whammy for a lot of these you know kind of real estate commercial real estate areas. Um, so they've just been really knocked down hard. They've been negative in, in the work that I do. All the like real estate investment trusts and kind of related companies have just been really slammed, uh, both in terms of the stock prices and their earnings estimates that I track closely. Um, there have been actually some signs of uh, maybe the, the worst is past, uh, at least in terms of what people's sentiment is. Again, the same way people thought about the economy last year, uh, people think about real estate. It's just it's never going to end. This is going to be bad forever. 
There's a lot of negativity there. So if things are even a little less bad than people expect, maybe there's an opportunity in certain areas. So there have been some of the REITs and areas that have actually been popping up as being attractive, uh, at least for the next maybe a few months or you know six months or a year, uh, as kind of a contrarian uh, play. Uh, but you have to be selective. It's not the whole area. Only areas where there's demand in certain things, and they've you know they worked out the costs of financing, uh, things like that, uh, where there might be some some opportunities. I think just because everyone's gotten so negative on on the whole space, um, but I don't think it's going to you know bring the economy down. But I think it's going to be a drag on banks that that lent money to them and to the the companies themselves uh, for a little while longer. With the limited inventory that you mentioned on the residential side of things, um, you know, I kind of think of, let's say, like a small cap stock where there's low liquidity can lead to big price swings. Um, could that be a contributing factor in a correction in the residential real estate market? Uh, yeah, no, you're right. And to the extent that the amount of activity, just the level of transactions um, in the market is, is relatively low, then it doesn't take as many transactions to kind of move prices or kind of to, to change people's views. And I do think that is because people are kind of stuck in some ways now um, that, uh, you know, the buyers want to get the high price and the sellers want to get a lower price and they can't find a way to meet in the middle as, as like they normally would. Um, when one side kind of breaks, um, then things can move quickly sometimes. Um, now, there are a lot of, you know, geographic, you know, differences across the country as well. Uh, in terms of demand and supply. Um, and the fact that a lot of people are now, because they can't find an existing home to, to buy, they go and buy a newly built home. So the home builders have actually been very busy in selling a lot of houses because there's not enough existing home inventory. Um, and so in places where they are building new homes, there's still demand for them. Uh, and that's been a big surprise that a lot of the home building companies have not uh, fallen like you would expect when mortgage rates go up uh, because they're still, still busy building homes. But again, that won't last forever. Um, so I think there's, uh, and there's been a lot of, uh, like multifamily apartment being built. So as those come online, you might see, uh, you know, rental prices and, and, and prices for, um, real estate in general, uh, coming off some. So I think it's going to, it's going to be a slower moving thing, I think, but I think you're right that, uh, at some point it may be that, um, the, uh, the, the sellers decide they will take a slightly lower price and then things go from there a little bit. Um, to, to, to push prices down or at least keep them from going up any further. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that could come into play there. Uh, so you mentioned some parts of the real estate market could be somewhat attractive as a contrarian sort of play. And if you were an investor right now looking for fertile hunting grounds for some investment ideas, what regions or asset classes or sectors do you think would offer the best sorts of opportunities today? Yeah, so I think um, right now I still prefer, say, you know, equities over over bonds. Uh, but there'll probably be a point at some point, maybe maybe six months from now, but you know, not too distant future when I think bonds will be more attractive, particularly for people who are looking for you know uh, income and kind of safer assets, retirees, you know, things like that. Um, bonds have not been a safe place to be for several years now, and so I think you might have a bumpy ride for a little while longer. But at some point, it'll become attractive. Um, so I would still probably stay with equities, certainly for now. Um, I think there are, like I say, some opportunities in uh, commercial real estate and REITs and things, uh, but you have to be a bit careful. Um, and I think um, globally, I think the U.S. still probably is the place to be um, in terms of the, just the dynamism of the economy 
the uh, the tendency for you know shareholders to be rewarded uh, in the U.S. relative to say Europe or you know, China or a lot of other markets globally. Um, there's just much more of a shareholder focus here, and how you know has been for a long time. Um, and the uh, technology related areas, um, which are you know very much dominated by the U.S., I think are where the long run growth is really still going to come from. Um, so I think that the the question there is really just you know whether you you know pay too much for it. Uh, it's, it's a valuation question. I think the growth is still going to come from technology and technology adjacent areas. Um, it's, it's just a question of, you know, you can't, you don't want to buy after a big move up when, when things are very expensive and everybody's excited about them, you got to wait for, for pullbacks and, and, and declines to buy, which can be tough to do psychologically, you know, and every, nobody wants to buy stuff that's going down. Um, and so I think that's the, the, the difficulty is finding, you know, good, good stocks, you know, um, to, to buy that have the growth potential, but just not, not paying you know, too much for them. So I think technology related areas, um, the U S is to probably still the place to be and equities for the long run, I think are still the place to be. Um, but bonds will be less of a bad place to be than they have been for, you know, much of the last five, five or 10 years. And that makes with, uh, makes a lot of sense thinking about where interest rates are now. I mean, cuts are on the horizon at some point, I would imagine. So that would be definitely very positive for any bondholders. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you something about the fixed income side of things as well. Um, so it seems like spreads have been relatively narrow, despite all of this kind of economic uncertainty in the background. I know you mentioned that, you know, we're might be in a soft landing scenario right now, but there still seems to be a lot of uncertainty in pockets uh, in the economy. And so why do you think spreads are so narrow? Is this just a factor of you know investors saying, yes, we're in a soft landing situation, or is there anything else that might be causing this? Uh, you're right. I mean, I think um, to some degree, I think peop- the bond investors that are looking at the corporate bonds are seeing a relatively stable U.S. economy and and again, corporate profits have actually been you know pretty held up pretty well and are, and are going up. Meaning that the earnings estimates that I track have been rising for most of this year. In fact, they they bottomed around January or so, and are still going up. And so that tells you that you know corporate profits, which is what you know is tied closely to the uh, corporate debt, the ability of companies to pay their debt, uh, which drives spreads, are still pretty pretty solid and and, and have been improving. Um, and again, corporate balance sheets certainly for the larger companies are in decent shape. Um, so there's some fundamental reasons for that. And also spreads are narrower than they were, but actually in like 2021, uh, when everybody was buying everything, uh, the spreads were actually a lot narrower then. So they're they're not as narrow as they could be or as they have been even you know a couple of years ago when they were really sort of extreme, I would say. Uh, I think they're closer to sort of normal historical average levels in non-recessionary periods right now. Um, so I wouldn't call them extreme tight, um, but they're sort of, you know, typical uh, for, you know, economic data like we've seen, which is sort of, you know, moderate growth and, you know, declining inflation. But again, reasonably good corporate profits and balance sheets, uh, which I think is, is the key. And um, so far, there haven't been any real big reasons to expect that to change imminently uh, to drive uh, credit spreads up. So to me, it kind of makes sense um, if you as long as you don't think that there's a recession right around the corner um, for spreads to be where they are. And, mm-hmm. and I don't. Mm-hmm. 
That makes total sense. Uh, now, earlier on, we talked a little bit about how the market is not the same as the economy, how the market is more forward looking. The economy, usually you're just looking at data that has already happened in the past. Uh, what would you say are some factors that can lead to more of this sort of decoupling from where you can see markets keep going up? And uh, if you were looking at the headlines, the economy does not seem like it's in good shape. Right, right. And I think there's, uh, well, there's a couple of things. One is that the headlines are often not a good way to judge. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the people who write business headlines, you know, they do a, a good job of doing what they do, but they're, they're journalists. They're, they're trying to, you know, get interest, get you to read their paper or get clicks. Um, they're not economists. They're not you know, going to describe things in context always or, or, or necessarily give you the right kind of frame of reference. Um, so I think that's, you know, one, one risk. But also that, um, yeah, there's a lot of sentiment that goes into uh, equity prices in particular and kind of what people expect for the future can be pushed around by a lot of different things. So, so one day it's the Fed driving things. One day it's, you know, maybe fiscal policy. One day it's oil prices. One day it's China. You know, uh, one day it's some big company announces something, uh, Apple or Tesla or Amazon or, you know, some, some big dominant company does something. So there's a lot of different things that will grab investors' attention at different times and cause them to push prices up or down, even though the you know the GDP or some other economic data might be saying something else. Um, you know, yes, it says that, but that's not what people are looking at that day or that week. Um, and so it's a matter of kind of almost um, you know market ADD. It's it's the, the, you know, their attention moves around from one thing to another, and there's a lot of different things that it's, each on their own are reasonable things to look at. Interest rates are important. You know, corporate earnings are important. You know, oil prices are potentially important. And all these things are important, but, you know, it's, it's hard to track them all at the same time. And then whatever one happens to be in the headlines or gets attention that day is what drives prices around. And then people just, you know, they get excited, they get bullish, they get, you know, or there's just more money around uh, to invest and they got to put it somewhere. And so they, they stick it somewhere. And so they, they're less sensitive to what uh, the, you know, the data might be saying. But um, overall, I think, you know, corporate earnings and interest rates are the two big drivers. And uh, in some ways, they've been almost uh, offsetting each other a lot in the certainly the last few months. Earnings have been pretty good, but interest rates have been going up. So you got a headwind and a tailwind. And so stock prices have been kind of choppy and back and forth for a little while. Um, you know, back around, say, March, you know, kind of, or maybe May, June, July, um, rates looked like they were stable. Maybe they're going to come down and earnings were pretty good. So you had the market going up and much more sort of, you know, uh, one directionally. And, uh, and so that kind of tells you, you know, when the rate story kind of went away, earnings became the topic and that pushed them up. Now the rates are back to being the top story and earnings less so. And now let's push prices down. So, you know, that's kind of how I look at it is which of those things is, is the thing that, uh, the topic du jour. And uh, right now it's interest rates. Um, but, you know, after if interest rates stabilize, it'll go back to being earnings or oil or something else. It reminds me of the analogy that uh, Warren Buffett used where he's talking about Mr. Market, which is kind of, you know, like an obsessive compulsive sort of neurotic entity. And, you know, one day they're happy and one day they're very extremely pessimistic and it can swing very wildly from day to day. Um, Absolutely. And, and so emotion can really drive a lot of that instead of just pure logical decision making. Right, right, exactly. And being able to take advantage of that and kind of keep your head while everyone else is losing theirs kind of thing. Um, that's, you know, that's how you can you can get ahead or at least avoid mistakes. 
Um, and that's really, you know, part of what having objective models and indicators or some kind of a plan that where you, you don't read the headlines and then decide what to do. You decide what you're going to do and then, you know, respond to the data. That's great, Sam. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to give a plug for your uh, Twitter or X um, account. Uh, you post some great, great insights on there. So I really recommend all of our listeners to go and follow you there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah, the Twitter handle is at Mill Street Research. Um, so you can you can find there. I'm posting you know most every day uh, comments about uh, you know what I'm seeing. I'm also uh, Mill Street Research is posts on LinkedIn. Um, so if you're on LinkedIn, you can, I post there periodically as well. Um, and then, uh, there's a website, millstreetresearch.com where you can see examples of, of the research that I produce. Uh, there's a blog there that I update once in a while. Um, and, uh, a lot more background and description of kind of what I do and, and how I do it. Um, so any of those places are good places to look, but certainly, um, the, the Twitter at Mill Street Research there is, uh, uh probably where I, I post most frequently. I'm still getting used to saying X, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard one. <laughs> it's a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say Twitter till I, you know, it goes away. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, once again, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a ton of value from your commentary. Uh, thank you again for joining us and I hope you have a great afternoon. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been my pleasure.